1: I mentioned that we have a speaker today, one of our new members, and I want to tell a little bit. I want to tell you a little bit about him before he comes up. Ravi Goldberg. He was raised in the Messianic movement by parents who grew up in cultury, culturally Jewish and Hindu families. Through study and personal experience, Ravi is convinced that Yeshua is who he says he is. Now, Ravi's mission is to serve, help, and build the body of Messiah and the leaders God raises up. Since studying entrepreneurship, business analytics, leadership, and leadership at the University of Tampa, he has worked in various management roles developing mission based enterprises. Ravi was impacted by, in high school by the YMJA retreats and in college by the YMJA Experience Eastern Europe ministry trip. And he now serves as vice president of the Young Messianic Jewish Alliance, the youth branch of the MJA, the Messianic Jewish Alliance of America. He has moved to Georgia and we are happy to welcome him into our Beth Hallel Mishpacha. He currently was just onboarded as a fellow service leader and we're excited for him to start that. And, and um, as if, and if it was not obvious, he loves to serve the Lord with all his capabilities. So we are happy and blessed to have him step in and speak with us and we thank you. And will everyone please give him a warm Beth Hallel welcome and welcome Ravi Goldberg.
2: Thank you so much. It's uh, great to be with you this Shabbat. Like uh, Samuel just mentioned, uh, my mom was raised in a Hindu family. And uh, and I was thinking about some of her story this week and how she came to know Yeshua. And so uh, as a high school student, she was working at Burger King, which a good Hindu girl should not be doing. Uh, in Hinduism, there's a healthy respect of cows, to say the least. And uh, But when she was working at Burger King, Uh, she met a few different Christian co-workers. And one of the things she realized is that with the God of Israel, they had a personal relationship with with him. And there was something about that that was different, that when they prayed, they knew that God heard them. And her experience in Hinduism was not the same thing. In Hinduism, there's not a personal God in the same way. She would offer different sacrifices with her family and come back the next day and see the food still there. But when she saw this about the God of Israel, there was something different, that there was a God who heard you, a God who was real. Yes. And this helped her in her journey of coming to Yeshua. And uh, and so she had came to faith in high school, and then uh, I was raised in the Messianic movement. But I think growing up in faith, she was able to see how you could have an encounter with the living God and pray and know that God heard you. But for me, I think maybe in my life, prayer has been one of the most difficult things. Um, you know, today we said the Mourner's Scottish, and I was thinking back to this month last year where someone who was like a second mom to me and a lot of my friends passed away. And it was a difficult time of thinking of unanswered prayer. And it was a time where when I would pray it was hard because it would just make me more disappointed. Like I, it hurts too much to pray because it feels like you're then hoping and then you just hear worse and worse news. And I would feel like sometimes I'd get up for prayer more discouraged. And it was during this time I was reading in Genesis about Abraham and Sarah. And what I appreciate about the Torah and the scriptures is that it's not sugar-coated. It's real and it's raw and you can see how their lives are messy and what they're going through. And it's real to what we experience in this world and as humans. And so when dealing with unanswered prayer and disappointment, these chapters in Genesis really spoke to me at this time last year. And I'd like to look at them with you today. If you want to turn with me over to Genesis chapter 17, we find Abraham talking with God and at this point in his journey he's been in the land for 25 years it's been 25 years since God gave him a promise to give him a future and a family and to make him a great nation and to give him the land he promised to make him a great nation to give him the land but 25 years later all he has is one son and it's in this moment that God confirms his promise to Abraham. And God, say, and God says to, to Abraham, I'm going to give you a son of promise through your wife, Sarah. And I'm going to give you a great nation through that son. And at this point, D, uh, Abraham prays. And he says, okay, God, but could the promise come through Ishmael? And God says, No. So I want to read this paragraph over in Genesis, in Genesis 17, beginning in verse 19, right after Abraham says, God, couldn't it be through Ishmael? So Genesis 17, verse 19, but God said, on the contrary, Sarah, your wife will bear you a son and you must name him Isaac. So I will confirm my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his seed after him. As for Ishmael, I've heard you and see I have blessed him and I'll make him fruitful and I'll multiply him very, very much. He will father 12 princes and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this this set time next year. And the two things that hit me as I read this, God first says no, And then he says, it's going to happen, this promise is going to be filled at the set time next year. And as I was thinking about this and wrestling with disappointment and unanswered prayer, what hit me in that moment was when prayer goes unanswered or when disappointed, to ask God if he wants to do something better or other things first. What hit me is that he can do something better. At this moment, Abraham is asking for Ishmael to receive the promise, and God says no because he wants to do something better. And he can do something better because he's looking at a bigger picture. Abraham just has him in mind and has Ishmael in mind. But one thing that hit me is that in this portion, God not only has Abraham and Ishmael and Hagar in mind, but also Sarah. He hasn't forgotten her. And it hit me as I was reading this I wonder what these 25 years must have been like for Sarah, for her struggling with infertility, where in the ancient Middle East, having kids was everything. Having a lot of kids meant status. It meant more people to work in the family business, more people to fight. So it meant more money, more influence, more love, big family, all of that. In the ancient Middle East, her identity as a woman and as a wife was tied to having children, and she had had none. None. 25 years of a promise from God and nothing. And I thought about maybe her experience of these 25 years and the rejection that maybe she faced. There was two times in Abraham's life where there's a famine and so he goes off to a neighboring kingdom and he's worried that they're going to kill him to take his wife. And so he says to her, tell people you're only my sister. And he basically takes off his wedding ring. And I wonder what that might have felt like for her, that Abraham was willing to give up his marriage, give up his relationship to Sarah, give her up in exchange for her life. I wonder what she felt like. Like maybe if we had a son, he wouldn't do this. Maybe he couldn't do this. What was that like when your husband was willing to give that up multiple times? I wonder what maybe she faced with imposter syndrome, right? There was these times where he's worried they would take his wife, right, because she was super pretty. And I maybe wonder what she felt like, like, okay, people think I'm attractive, but if they only, as I go into this new place, what if they only knew that the one thing that really matters and the one thing a husband wants the most, children, I can't give him. I wonder what it felt like that for all of these years of marriage with Abraham, that the one thing he wanted most in the world She couldn't give him. And then there's this point, right, where they say, okay, well, Sarah says, okay, I have this maid, Hagar. Maybe you can have a son with her, like a surrogate pregnancy. It'll be okay. But it's not a surrogate pregnancy, and it's not okay. And it results in a lot of drama and a lot of pain where then Hagar belittles Sarah and makes her even more feel worthless and useless. And it's in this moment God says no to to Abraham, Because he sees Sarah and he wants to do something better. Something better for Sarah. But what I love about it is God's not only looking out for Sarah, he's looking out for all of them, including Hagar and Ishmael. In this this time, right in Genesis chapter 17, where, where God says, no, I'm not going to give the promise to Ishmael. Right before, in the chapter before and right in the chapter after, twice God supernaturally saves Ishmael's life. And in the chapter before, there's Hagar and Ishmael in the desert, dying of thirst. And it says the angel of the Lord comes to them. And so often in the scripture, when we see the angel of the Lord, it looks like it's Yeshua. And we see that Yeshua travels across all the dimensions of the universe and searches the desert to save Ishmael's life. He says no to Abraham, but it's not because he doesn't love Ishmael. He has something better for all of them. And God can do something better because he sees the whole picture. But what I also appreciate about it is God can do something better, but he still invites us to ask specifically for what we want. What's interesting is that Abraham says, God, can you bless Ishmael? Can you make him, can the promise come to him? And God says, no, he says, but because you specifically asked for Ishmael, I will bless him. But what's interesting is God already said in the previous chapter he was going to bless Ishmael. When Ishmael was dying in the desert and God saved him, he made a promise then. But what's interesting is that because Abraham asked for God to bless Ishmael, now when God does bless Ishmael, he doesn't do it in spite of Abraham, but through Abraham, that Abraham is now a part of the story of Ishmael. Where before, if God had blessed Ishmael, he could have walked through life, right, with this sense of rejection from Abraham. But now, because Abraham specifically prayed for what he wanted, now Abraham plays a role in God's blessing of Ishmael and giving him a future. And what I appreciate about it is that God doesn't just say, well, I want to do something better, so just pray, okay, your will, and leave it at that. But over and over again in Scripture, God invites us to pray specifically and what I appreciate about that is when I do, it helps me clarify where I'm at with my expectations and wants and hopes. And it allows me to lay them down before God, let him resurrect what he wants. But what I love is when we pray those things specifically for a want, God uses our prayers to activate what he wants to do. He uses Abraham's prayer, even though he says no, he still uses it to activate his plan for Ishmael's life. And God does something better for all of them. And throughout these chapters in Genesis, whether it's to Abraham and it's to Sarah and to Ishmael, to Hagar, over and over again, he says to them literally, I hear you and I see you. And, and he says no to Abraham because he wants to do something better for all of them. But as I read it, I then look on further and what it means for Ishmael. And the next few years don't look too great. And I think, God, what does it mean when you say you can do better, but what's happening doesn't look better? There is times where I'd look in the scriptures and I'd read verses like in the Psalms where King David says, you withhold no good thing from the righteous and from those who follow you. And I think, is that true? You withhold no good thing? I would look at Matthew and Luke, where Yeshua says, which one of you, when your child asks you for bread, is gonna give him a stone. When he asks you for a fish, you're gonna give him a snake. But God is gonna give good gifts to his children, and thinking, but God it doesn't always feel like what you give, what happens, is good. What I appreciate as we look at the story of Abraham is that God doesn't just tell him to grit his teeth, to have faith, to push forward. But God actually responds to him when he brings his doubts to him. Over in Genesis chapter 15, God meets with Abraham and again reiterates his promise. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to give you the land. And at this point in Genesis 15, Abraham breaks down a little and he says, Really, God? You're going to make me a great nation? You're going to give me the land? Right now, I only have one son and I have no land. But God doesn't scold him. It says, Instead, God let him outside and told him to look up. And he said, you see these stars? You're going to have, your children are going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And he gives him a picture that he can hold on to. And that for every night in the future as he's on his bed dealing with unanswered prayers and disappointment. Those nights, if he looks to the stars, he can remember. God doesn't scold him in his doubt but he meets him there. But then in Genesis 15, it doesn't end there because Abraham says, okay, God, but how do I know? And God says, you'll know because of covenant. And it's at this point that they do the ancient Middle Eastern uh, custom and they make a covenant and they kill an animal and they split it in two. And as you do it, as you walk through it, you're basically saying, if I don't keep my promise, may I be like this animal, may I be cut off, may I die. And what God says to Abraham is, this is how you'll know, because I am willing to die to keep my promises to you. Even death won't stop me. And what I appreciate about his covenant with Abraham is it points to Yeshua, because in Yeshua's death, God's undying love for us isn't just theoretical, but it's real and it's concrete and we can cling to it. And what God gives to Abraham to cling to as he's dealing with doubt and unanswered prayer and disappointment is to look to his covenant with him. And that even when it looks like what God is doing is not better, then we can know that whatever the reason is, it's not a lack of love. That because of Yeshua's death, we can know for us that we can know whatever his reasons are, it's not a lack of love. And I think about Lazarus and the stories in the Brech Shah about that where Lazarus dies. And he's one of Yeshua's closest friends. It calls him a disciple that Yeshua loved. And when he dies, his sisters and his, and his friends are so upset with Yeshua. You could have saved him. You could have healed him. Why not? You let him die. But the reason is because Yeshua was doing something better in resurrecting Lazarus from the dead. And that even when it didn't look like it was better, it wasn't a lack of love. And what I love is with Abraham, with his doubts, God meets him there and he points him to his covenant. That whatever his reasons are for when it doesn't look better, it's not a lack of love. And so as I was reading this, I was challenged that when having unanswered prayer or disappointment to ask God if he wants to do something better. But looking at this portion where, Ab- where God says no to Abraham, I was also challenged to also ask God if He wants to do other things first. And one of the things that hit me was that sometimes He doesn't give us the reasons He does other things first. He says Isaac is going to be born at this, born at this set time, and it's over twenty-five years till that happens. And I wonder about what are some of the reasons that maybe God could have done it. He doesn't explicitly state them. What's interesting is, he, he, is that he waits not until they're just struggling with infertility for decades, but it says in Genesis 18 that it happens after Sarah is post-menopause. God waits till it's impossible in order to fulfill the promise. And I wonder if in the moments before when, when they're struggling to trust God, if they could have appreciated those reasons yet. One of the things about it, right, is God waits until it's impossible for a nine-year-old woman to, woman to have a child before he answers their prayer. And could they have appreciated how would God use that in the future? When my dad came to faith, he, he, was, uh, he was 18, he was telling some friends of his uh, from Hebrew school that he had grown up with, and they're like, you believe this crazy Christian stuff like the virgin birth and this other like junk? And my dad was like, well, if we believe that God could give a nine-year-old woman a baby, he can give a virgin a baby. It's both impossible. (laughs) But I don't think when they were struggling with infertility that they could have appreciated that yet, right? God says Isaac is going to be born at a set time. And so I don't know if they could have appreciated that maybe by waiting, Isaac was born at the right time so he was able to marry Rebecca. I don't know if God had them wait so that they could build up enough wealth that when they go over to Rebecca's family, they're, they're actually willing to have the marriage because they look at how much money Abraham has and they like the dowry and they like the sound of all that money. I wonder if he could have appreciated all the reasons before. Sometimes God doesn't give us the reasons. But other times that God has us wait because he wants to do other things first Sometimes he doesn't give us the reasons. Sometimes he wants to do other things first with others. And in Genesis chapter 15, it's interesting. He gives to Abraham one of the reasons he waits to give him the land. It says over in Genesis 15, we read the, we'll read it here. God says to, in Genesis 15, 13, Then he said to Abraham, Know for certain that your seed will be strangers in the land that's not theirs and they'll be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years but I'm going to judge the nation they will serve and afterwards you will go out with many they will go out with many possessions but you you will come to your fathers in peace you'll be buried at a good old age then in the fourth generation they will return here for the iniquity of the amorites is not yet complete and it's that last line for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. He's saying the the, the guilt of the Canaanites who are living in the land is not yet complete. And what's so interesting to me is that God doesn't just kick out the Canaanites and right away give the land to Abraham and to his family, but he gives the Canaanites 400 years. And it hits me. I love cop shows, law shows, legal shows, legal dramas, procedurals, all that. And what I hit is it's kind of like, right, if you've got someone who's guilty... But the officer, the police officer, and the judge, they want to make sure it's a clean arrest. They want to make sure it's a fair trial. At the end of it, there's no cause for appeal. That at the end of it, you know that this was just. And so, right, in those cases, right, they'll make sure the arrest is clean, no evidence can be thrown out, fair trial, due process, entitled to the best defense, right? That at the end of it, there is so much justice and so much mercy that you can't question the verdict, and, I, and I, I wonder if maybe, right, God says here, one of the reasons he's waiting to give him the land is that so there's no doubt about the verdict. In 2 Peter 3.9, it says that God is not slow in keeping his promises, but he's patient, not wanting anyone to perish or to die, but all to come to repentance. And he's giving the Canaanites 400 years turn around, right? The Canaanites are living in a life where they're abusing their children, they're exploiting the poor. There is so much sin and oppression and injustice, but God doesn't just kick them out and give the land to Abraham right away. He wants to do some things first with them and he gives them 400 years and by the end of it, it is clear God is just in giving the land to Israel and to the Jewish people. Sometimes God doesn't give us the reasons. Sometimes God wants to do other things first with others. But sometimes God wants to do other things first in us. It's interesting, right after God first makes the promise to Abraham to make him a great nation and to give him the land, almost the first major thing Abraham does is take off his wedding ring and lie about Sarah. Almost the last major thing before God fulfills the promise, is Abraham repeats this same mistake. It's the last major thing that Abraham does, almost the last. But then there's one other thing that happens. In that second time that Abraham lies about Sarah, takes off his wedding ring, is willing to give up the marriage, God tells the Canaanite king what had happened, the Canaanite king who had taken Sarah into his harem. And he tells the Canaanite king, I'm going to lock up all of the wombs in your family and your nation. You won't be able to have children unless you ask Abraham to pray for you. And so the Canaanite king brings Sarah back and then he asks Abraham to pray for him. And then at that point, Abraham has to pray for his enemies to have what he's always wanted and could never have. He has to pray for the people that he's had issues with, the people that he was afraid of, the people who were in the land that he was hoping would be his. The people that he was afraid would kill him and take his wife. He has to pray for them to have what he's wanted. And what's interesting about these verses, right, is it says, Then Abraham prays for them, and God unlocks their wombs and they can have children. Very next verse. Then God comes to Sarah, unlocks her womb, and they have a sign and name him Isaac. And I wonder that sometimes God wants to do other things first in us. And I wonder if the last thing that God had to do was to do a change in Abraham first before he was ready to father Isaac. And that through praying for his enemies to have what he wanted, God was doing a work in him. But it's, it's something throughout Scripture that sometimes God says, I won't answer these prayers because I need to do something first in you. Over and over again in Scripture, it says that prayers can be blocked by sin, unbelief, and pride. But it's not because God hates us. What I see in these, in these stories in Scripture is that God those things block our prayers and God doesn't want to answer those prayers that are mixed in with sin and unbelief and pride because those things can poison the gifts that he wants to give us. I I think back to a few years ago, I was at a a Messianic Leaders Roundtable and a pastor, Preston Morrison, was speaking and he was saying to to these leaders of ministries and congregations, and the question he asks has just been etched in my mind. He said, are you capable of handling what you want God to give you? If God gave you a million dollars for your ministry, could you handle it? Are you ready? Are you prepared? And I wonder if sometimes God waits so that he can do other things first in us, because if there is sin, if there's unbelief and pride, those things can poison the gift, so it actually, actually harms us. I mean, I could ask for a million dollars, and what if God gave it to me, and then I gamble it away, I get into debt, I go bankrupt, and then there's people coming after me for money. I'm worse off. I'm worse off because God answered my prayer, right? And there are ways in which that if God answers our prayer when our prayers are mixed with unbelief and pride and sin, it poisons it. That there, if, there, if, if my happiness is tied to getting those things Or if my happiness is tied to people, then I can't appreciate these people for who they are because my identity and validation and happiness are wrapped up in them. I can't enjoy the gifts that God would want to give me because now my happiness is tied up with them and I'm dependent upon them. If I'm dependent upon people for my happiness and then they frustrate or disappoint me, then I'm empty, right? Then I'm frustrated with them. I can't appreciate people if my happiness is riding on them. I can't appreciate the gifts that God wants to give us if my happiness is wrapped up in them. And so if I have sin and unbelief or pride, those things can poison the gifts that God wants to give me. And so they're not even good. But what I appreciate is in this passage with Abraham, God gives him the antidote. The anecdote. The first thing that God says to him in Genesis 15, when Abraham is struggling with his doubts and saying, really, God, you're going to keep your promises? The first thing he says to him is, I am your shield and your very great reward. And what hit me is, right, this passage is about covenant pointing to Yeshua. And it hit me. He's saying the antidote so that you're not poisoned by a sin and unbelief and pride is to trust and treasure me. He says, I'm your shield. If you trust in me that I bear every attack on you, can you trust in me that you don't have to bear your sins or guilt or shame or fear, but I am your shield and I bear those things for you? He's saying, can you treasure me that I am your very great reward, that happy, your joy and validation and identity, if they're in me, if I'm the source of them, if you're satisfied with me, if I'm your very great reward, then by trusting and treasuring me, it frees you from the unbelief and the pride and the sin that can poison the gifts I want to give you. And so what I appreciate is he's saying, I want to give you things. Sometimes I need to do other things first. Sometimes things first in me. But if you trust me, if you treasure me, I can transform you to be able to, to be able to, capable of handling what I want to give you. Right? And I, I love it that as we're in scripture, we can see God's heart and his character And we can trust him more. That as we pray and ask questions and listen to God, we can discover his goodness and treasure him. That as we're in spiritual community where we use our spiritual gifts to serve one another, to speak into each other's lives, to build up one another, that we can experience God's power and goodness. And as we, as we treasure and trust in him, he transforms us to be able to handle the gifts that he wants to give us and the answers to prayer. And I love how God gives these things to Abraham. He says, I am your shield and your very great reward. If you trust and treasure me, if you trust and treasure me, then you'll be able to ask me if I want to do something better if you are trusting and treasuring me and you know that I'm transforming you and at work in the world, then you can ask me if I want to do other things first. And so sometimes God tells Abraham no and he tells him wait because he wants to do something better and he wants to do other things first. And what I love is the same God who is faithful to Abraham and to Sarah thousands of years ago is faithful to us that he invites us to trust and to treasure him. And he's saying when there's unanswered prayer, when you're disappointed, to ask if God wants to do something better or to do other things good. Because he can. And I'll pray for us as we move forward on this Shabbat that today would be a day where we can trust and treasure God in new ways and to look to him to do things better and to be open when he wants to do other things first. Father, I thank you that you invite us to come to you with our doubts and disappointments. That you invite us to be real with you. God, would you open our eyes to see that we can trust you? Would you open our eyes to see that we can treasure you? Would you give us the courage to ask you if you want to do something better? And would you give us the strength if you want to do other things first? We thank you that we can know that you are for us and that you have good for us because of Yeshua's death and resurrection. Fix our eyes on him this Shabbat in Yeshua's name.
0: Thank you for listening to this week's message from Rabbi Kevin. Please like, subscribe, and share this link with a friend. We would be grateful to receive your tax-deductible gift,